0: up our sermon series called Reset. Everybody say Reset. Reset. And I pray right now in Jesus' name, God, that you would divinely, right now, supernaturally reset our minds. Father, the darkening of our minds that have come through addiction, that have come through overconsumption of of anything, Father, especially technology, through self-image issues, Father, through placing our our purpose and our identity in work in any form of this world. Father, when we've created idols out of good things that were never intended to be misused. Father, whatever it is that has caused us to become darkened in our understanding. Right now, I pray supernaturally you would reset us, God. Reset our understanding. Reset our ability to see, God. See circumstances see this world, see your will, see other human beings as created in the image of God and treat them in, in such a manner. Yeah. Father, reset our very being, I pray, here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus. It's the final sermon to this series. We focused a lot over the last few weeks on technology. And I'm going to bring it back to technology. But today, um, my wife says that I experienced The Good Gene of Storytelling, because my mother and my grandfather are incredibly, incredibly good storytellers. And I know that sounds like, oh, who can't? Now, some people can tell a story and some people think they can tell a story. And you're just like, get to the good stuff already. You know, so she said, um, tell a story today. And, you know, I got nothing original for you because every week I just get up here and I share God's word. That's not original. Um, So today I'm going to tell you a few stories some important stories, and I want to ask you just to incline your ears um, as we close out this sermon series, and the title of my message today is one word, roads, roads. In Matthew chapter 7, in the 13th verse, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says something very profound. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Uh, first story that I'm going to tell you is embarrassing. I was, I don't know, fourteen or fifteen, and my father got into hunting. We're Jersey boys, we don't do that, but my dad got into it because of my mother's side of the family that are, <laughs> it's okay, we joke about this all the time, but we, we tease my, my now with the Lord grandmother side of the family as a, being a bunch of hillbillies, um, and we got hillbillies out in Missouri, and um, we go out there, and my father was exposed to that and brought it back and took me and my brother hunting, and, and the second year I went hunting, um, I was like, man, I'm bored. I'm so bored. I just went out into the middle of the woods at at the crack of dawn. I was up before the sun, freezing, got into this little tiny like hunting blind, sat in there and was just looking at nothing. It was just woods. And about three hours goes by and a 15 year old kid is like, man, I can't do this anymore. This is stupid. There's no such thing as waiting. I want to I want to get something. So I'm just going to walk. They think deer can hear me. No, they can't hear me. They can't smell me. They don't know what's coming. I mean, I'm better than that. So I get out of the blind, and I just start walking, and I'm thinking, okay, I got a game plan. I know there's a lot of forest out there, and I got to know where I'm going. So I figure, you know, base camp is all the way over there where we start, on the other side of the woods. So if I, I see a creek down there, and I know that at base camp, there's another creek, so they must meet up. So I'm going through this vast forest, and I think the creek will be my guide. It'll be the road. It's easy, and and I won't get lost. So I start walking, and I see nothing, and I just keep walking and walking and walking. And finally, that voice in the back of my head that I was trying to drown out became louder and louder and louder, saying, something's wrong because you should be where you expected to be at this point. I had a walkie-talkie, but to be honest with you, I was embarrassed at this point because I didn't tell anybody that I was moving and leaving my blind, and I should have done that, and I figured, you know what, I can get myself out of this mess. If I just keep on the path that I'm on, I'll be fine, and I kept walking and walking and walking and walking. About an hour goes by. It takes me about 15 minutes to walk from base camp to where I was set up, and an hour goes by, and I am not back where I thought I would be. All of a sudden, I find myself deep down in this boggy swamp terrain, and I come out in this open field that I've never seen before. And I'd like to say that, yeah, I was good. Uh, didn't get to me, but, man, I started bawling. I was crying like a little baby out there. I'm like, I'm out in the middle of the woods. I don't know what kind of people out here. Who's going to find me? I mean, this is bad. I'm embarrassed. And so I'm just, I, I'm, I'm utterly distraught, and I start just yelling i'm mad i'm trying to psych myself up to get myself out of the situation and finally i'm calling on the walkie-talkie but i'm out of range and nobody's getting through and so i mean the adrenaline is rushing the anxiety is setting in and finally finally i got the two cents to start shooting off my firearm because it's loud and if you do multiple of them usually people know okay uh, that He's not shooting at one deer. Maybe something's off. Usually there's, there's a sign for two shots as something's off. Finally, I, I, I start hearing somebody coming on the radio with somebody from our group. And they keep telling me, fire off, fire off, fire off. And so one shot, I wait to hear back from him. He goes, okay, fire it off again, another shot. And this process kept going until finally, uh, to my relief, I saw that guy just come walking down a road. That was plain as day, <laughs> plain as day, right in front of me. It was a dirt road. It was a no logging road in the woods, but it was a road. And I'm like, how did I miss that? Jeez. And we walked back the road, and I'm just ashamed and distraught. And it was amazing how that, that guy who's a close friend of our family just said, it's all right, you know. I got you, you're good, just follow me. I walk back the road and the rest is history and I don't like telling that story but it helps in spite of making me look like a fool which I was, um, really helps set the tone for the reality of the roads that we are tempted to walk in life that seem appropriate to us, right. that seem like the best course of action for us, that only get us further lost And further confused. And further distraught. All the while God has marked out a path. It can be hard to find. But if we listen and we look. And we're we're never going to get lost. So. We're talking about roads. I want to share with you. um, Three roads that we see in scripture. The first is the road to Emmaus. Guys, you can throw that first picture up there. I'll let you know if it's the right one. Just throw one of the pictures up there. Yeah, that's that's the right one. If you don't know the story about the road to Emmaus, let me me read it for you. This story I'm going to really just read from Scripture and then talk about. This is following the crucifixion of Jesus, but it's also following the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. The Passover celebration, which the crucifixion and the resurrection took place during the timeline in, was now over. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it says this. Now that same day, two of them, referring to disciples, Christians, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles outside from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, specifically the events of Jesus' crucifixion and, and the resurrection. Verse 15 says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him (laughs) he asked them what are you discussing together as you walk along and they stood still their faces downcast not saying that they were afraid to look at the guy but this is talking about their countenance they were depressed they were sad and one of them named Cleopas asked him are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Watch this. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, Peter and John, and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. Women go to the tomb. It's empty. Angels tell him he's not here. He's risen. He's risen. Peter and John go to exonerate the claims, verify them, and they just find that the stole's been, uh, stone has been rolled away. But do you hear the, the, the tone in this scripture? It's not a tone of verification. It's a tone of these guys saying, but he wasn't there. He wasn't here's what jesus says to them how foolish you are i mean i don't know two dudes and i'm just walking on the road and i call them fools i don't know about that but how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with moses and all the prophets He, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Remember, they still don't know it's Jesus. And as they approached the village to which they were going, here's, here's, this is important. Jesus continued on as if he were going to go further. So they reached their destination. And it says that Jesus gave the appearance of the idea that he was just going to keep walking along dead of night. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening, the day is almost over, and so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us let me just point out a few things here before i really hit the main point of this story the first problem that they had when they were recounting the reason as to why they were upset and depressed and downcast when jesus said hey what's wrong they go down the line and they say you know jesus of nazareth you've heard of him right Well, he was a prophet, great in word, great in deed, and we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but he kept talking and talking and talking about how he was going to have to die, and we kind of didn't take him seriously, but then he died. The chief priests falsely accused him, let him off, and he was inevitably crucified. But here's what's powerful. They said in verse 21, it's the third day since all this took place. What they're referring to is they remember Jesus said, I'm going to die, but in three days I'm going to rise again. He said that to them time and time again, and they were remembering that. And what's fascinating about this is this is the end of the third day from Jesus' crucifixion. The women went to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. Peter and John go and they found it just as the women had said. And yet for some reason, in spite of that information, that really shows you to conclude The most logical thing is that it happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. They didn't see that. They were just depressed. And and the irony of this, the irony of this is that it is the third day. And guess who's standing right there with them? Jesus. We don't know where he is. He said he would be here. Verse 24, it said, then some of our companions went to the tomb, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And I I, I think what I see here is almost this pettiness. They saw something, and they saw something, but we see nothing. Why don't you see anything? Why don't you see what Jesus is putting right before you? Why can't you experience him? The road to Emmaus teaches us this vital, vital truth about the roads that we walk towards God. It's this. God is waiting for you to invite him in. Did you see how the story ended? It says that Jesus, he he had talked, he had explained, he went back to scripture and said, hey guys, everything that Jesus, me, they know it, everything that Jesus taught about, is verified throughout all of Scripture. So let me just remind you about the things that you know, but you're, you're forgetting. And he speaks to the knowledge craving that they have. But that's not enough to remedy this situation. What's powerful is Jesus, who had every intention, I believe, of wanting to reveal himself to them, does something a little bit tricky. And they're walking on the road and they've arrived at the destination in Emmaus and they're about to go to town. But it's nighttime and proper practice, especially amongst Jews, was that you are very hospitable. And Jesus talked a lot about hospitality, not just as a Jew, but as a Christian and how we are to welcome the strangers that come in among us. Because we don't even know we might be entertaining angels. So hospi- hospitality is a huge thing. And and it's powerful here because I think it's a teaching moment of be hospitable. But more so, in the overarching scheme of things, Jesus is saying, are you going to welcome me in? Because I can just keep going. I talked to you. I told you everything that you wanted to hear. And you heard it, but you still don't see it. Are you going to welcome me in? And he didn't, he didn't say that to them directly, but it said he, he was pretending as if he was going to carry on. And he says, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus. Excuse me, not Jesus. Hey, stranger, we don't know you. Come on, come on, stay with us. It's late, it's nighttime. Come on, let's welcome you into our home, into our life, into our situation. We don't know you as well as we'd like to yet, but come on. They sit at the table and Jesus breaks bread. What he had just done three days prior with, with the 12. and They have communion together. It says their eyes were opened. You might be running after God on the road that you're walking right now. You might be a Christian here today saying, I'm seeking God, but you're not seeing him. You're hearing him, but you're not understanding him. You're you're hearing all the right things. You're reading all the right books. You're even doing all the right things except for allowing yourself to have an honest, vulnerable, hospitable, welcoming relationship with the one true God. The road to Emmaus teaches us that God is waiting for you to invite him in. All right, let me let me let me switch to another road that we see in Scripture. And it's the road to Damascus. And something really profound happens during the road to Damascus. You guys can throw that next picture up if you got it Um, on the road to Damascus. uh, Something really profound happens in the book of Acts. Uh, And now this one I'm not going to read so much of, and I'm just going to kind of paint a picture for you. There's a man by the name of Saul, who is of Tarsus, who you might know a little bit more well as Paul the Apostle. The incredible man who did incredible things and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 9, he was still, as we would understand him more so, Saul of Tarsus. But really, the man who hated Christians. The man who openly and vigorously made it his life's goal to find, hunt down in prison, and ultimately, if possible, persecute to the point of death anybody that says, I follow Jesus. He hated him. Because many of these Christians, all of them at the start, save a few, were Jews. And Paul is a Jew of Jews, a Pharisees, who believes in the one true God. And this whole Christianity thing with Jesus coming and saying, yeah, we're Jewish and we're the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. A man being God? No, that's sacrilege. That's blasphemy, even though they were waiting for a Messiah based on their own scripture. But for some reason couldn't accept it. And Paul was one of the biggest advocates against Christianity and made it his life's goal to hunt down Christians. And in fact, so much so that he's doing really well in Jerusalem. But he hears about Christians that are now from the, the, the Passover festival and the Feast of Pentecost are now going and spreading the word of God. And these house churches are popping up. And now I'm, Paul is getting reports that there's some Christians in Damascus that have shown their face in the synagogues. And he goes to the chief priests and the magistrates in Jerusalem and he says, hey, give me letters of approval that I can bring to the leaders in the Damascus temple and synagogue, giving me the right to hunt down Christians going door to door, house to house. So he's just doing what he believes is right, and he's doing a good job at it. And he takes the road to Damascus. And as he's traveling along this road, all of a sudden a light flashes around him. And it knocks him off of his horse, flat on his butt, And he hears the phrase, Saul, Saul, in verse 4. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He couldn't see anything. Literally, Paul couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. Saul thought he was doing what was right. And he was walking a road of self-righteousness that God stopped him cold in his. And and the punishment, temporary punishment, that God inflicts on Saul is literal blindness. But I I think, I, I really, really do personally believe this, that when I study this scripture, I believe that God was blinding Saul, that his blinding of Saul was his own way of manifesting an internal problem. Blindness to who God really was. You know, why, why would God choose, you, you know, again, this is conjecture. I don't know. This isn't like deep biblical theological hermeneutics that sound. It's just an honest personal observation. God could have done anything to Saul. He could have crippled him. He could have given him leprosy. He could have given him COVID symptoms and he couldn't taste his favorite foods. I don't know. He could have done anything, but for some reason he chose blindness. Because I think God will allow very difficult situations in our lives to be a reflection of what it is that we're doing to ourselves. See this, I, I sometimes God needs to knock us on our butt before we finally see. We say, God, why is this happening to me? God's like, I'll tell you why, and you know why. But you've got to be willing to listen and to hear and know that I've got the answer to walk you through this. But you're not listening to me. You are running from me. You are actively persecuting me, Saul. And you think you're doing my will. You are not doing my will. You are standing in opposition to my will. And you're just not listening. You're not seeing it's going to take some drastic measures in order for me to wake you up. All right, all right, all right. rest of the story goes on, and, and it says that God speaks in a vision to a disciple in the very city of Damascus, where Saul was on his way. Likely, that would probably be one of the men that Saul would carry off and throw in prison and maybe persecute to death. God shows up to this man and says, you know about this guy, right? And Ananias is like, yeah, I know about this, dude. And I heard he was on the way here. And God says, I want you to go to him. And I want you to carry my word to him. And I want you to lay your hands on him so that he can experience healing. Ananias goes, he says, Saul, I know who you are. I know what you've been all about. But let me tell you something. God is here to heal you. God is here to give you a new start. He's going to show you how much you are to suffer for his name are the very words that that God says that I don't think is God being petty and God saying, all right, now Paul's going to have to pay back all of his mistakes. That's not what that means. It just means back to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Narrow is the path. Narrow is the road that leads to life. It's hard. It's difficult. The road to destruction is wide, it's easy, it's enjoyable, but it leads to death, Narrow is the way. Ananias to Paul, Paul, God saves you, God loves you, yes. it's a hard life to walk for him. So the road to Damascus teaches us this principle, God wants to make himself known to imperfect people. Nothing new, right? But don't miss it. Don't miss what God just did right there. And, you know, Paul goes on and he writes one of many letters, the book of Romans. And he says in chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this manner. Here it is. Here's how God proves that he really loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for the perfect. Christ didn't live a perfect life for the perfect. He did it for the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst for us. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking there's a clear line between perfect and imperfect. Nope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't care how well put together you got your life or how in shams your life is. We are all in equal standing before God. And his judgment of us is exonerated. Charges are dropped. You're set free. Accept me. Live for me. That's the gospel right there. And that's what the road to Damascus teaches us in a very picturesque way. A very hard-learned way that forced Paul to the ground literally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Exactly the posture that God wants us in, that we need to be in, in order to see and hear and know him. The final road that I want to show you from scripture is the road to the tomb. Now we're backtracking at this point historically back to when those women on the third day went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. Um, and if you read in Luke chapter 24, again, I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to highlight some things about it. It says that there were a couple of women that were on the way to the tomb carrying spices, and I want you to take note of that. That's important. They weren't about to have a cookout. Uh, there was a very specific reason why they brought those spices. Um, and then there are as, as they're on their way to the temple, or at, uh, on their way to the tomb. Suddenly, out of nowhere, two angels appear. It scares them freak out, drop everything that they have and they're in awe, reverential fear because they realize this is a manifestation of God's messengers that are right before us, we're not worthy and they humble themselves and the angels say something profound to them in Luke chapter 24 verse 5 it says that in their fright the women bow down with their faces to the ground but the men said to them, watch this why do you look for the living among the dead he's not here. He has risen. It ain't Easter, but this is the message that we shouldn't just wait for Easter to praise and thank God for and walk and live in. The women are carrying spices. This is a tell of what their their emotional state was and their purpose was for their traveling to the tomb. And what's, what's profound about this is, is, remember, Jesus had been teaching nonstop throughout his life that he was going to die, but just like Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in, in the earth, but will rise again. He had made it plain as day, I'm not going to stay dead, but I'm going to have to die. And they were so hung up on the death of Jesus. Understandably, nobody wanted to die. Nobody wants to die. Jesus didn't want to die seeing that in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he did. And they got so hung up on the pain of that part of the story, that part of their life, they forgot what Jesus had been saying was the second part of it the whole time. And it's day three, the day that Jesus told them, I'm going to rise again. And they go to the tomb. But here's their posture. Here's their literal purpose in going to the tomb. They carried spices. This is a mark of what we see earlier on. We don't know if they knew that Jesus had been laid in a tomb with a stone rolled over it by a man who provided that tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible says. We, it's likely that the ladies didn't know that yet. So, they're on their way to wherever Jesus was laid, thinking they would have access to his body, and they wanted to continue to preserve the body because bodies rot. And so, they would use ointments and spices to preserve the body. In other words, they were on their way to the tomb to preserve the dead body of their now dead Messiah. That's why they were traveling this road to preserve something that was dead. Even though Jesus said, I'm not staying dead. Third day, Jesus said, I will rise again. They don't remember that. They don't hear that. Third day, let's go and preserve what's dead. And the angels look at them and say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. So so here's just a point of application for us. Listen to me. Some of you are traveling a road to Jesus as if he were a body in a tomb needing to be preserved. Your relationship with God looks nothing more than this situation. Preservation. Preservation, 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 preservation. I need to hold on to what was, what was, what was. Because I can't imagine losing any more. Even though God said it's a part of the process. The angels go on and they say in verse 6, he's not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you. Don't you remember? Remember? What Jesus himself said, while he was with you in Galilee, here's what he said. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Here's here's what the road to the tomb teaches us the road to the tomb teaches us that our God is not a corpse in a crypt but a king in control you get that the angels reminded him and said do do you realize that Jesus was in control of this whole situation from the get-go he didn't not know that he wasn't going to be crucified he wasn't unaware that he was going to be betrayed by judas he did not have any guys that he wasn't going to be nailed to a cross he knew all of that but he also knew that that doesn't end my story which means it doesn't end your story And I can't help but, you know, I I don't sit here and stand in judgment against the women because I probably would have been the same. I probably would have acted exactly in in, in a like manner because I'm sad, I'm mourning, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible says mourn with those who mourn, right? But not at the expense of the fulfillment of the entirety of God's word. When there's a time for mourning and there's a time for rejoicing, days one and two were a time for mourning. Day three... Should have been the women filled with faith running to the tomb, not mournfully, casually, slowly strolling with the intention of preserving what they had lost and mourning over. But day three should have been, are you ready to go and see that Jesus is no longer in the grave? They should have been sprinting to where Jesus was laying with expectation in faith saying my God thank you that your word has come to pass there may be weeping in the night but joy comes in the morning oh man so it's not a message about man those ladies are sinners going to hell that's not it at all it's just an honest moment where we need to put ourselves in their shoes and say okay I get it but you know you forgot what Jesus said and Do I think I know it all? But then, if I'm being honest, do I forget what God has said to me? He's not a corpse in a crypt. He's a king in control. There's a lot more roads and stories that come from roads traveled in Scripture. Now, I just want to briefly give you a, a, a really important history about something that took place in biblical times roughly around the year 500 bc starting with the very first emperor caesar augustus emperor of rome himself decided that we need to create a system of travel that will ease our traveling from destination to destination it will help with armies needing to get where they need to go faster it will help with commerce and trade it's going to help make a better life for everyone we need a system of highways and side roads because at this point they really didn't have that and so there is a long history of nearly eight centuries starting 500 years before christ even was born in the incarnation where rome decided we're going to start building a highway system garden state parkway baby no um but literally that idea. And so they started on this journey and it lasted for a couple hundred years after the events in the New Testament until it was perfected roughly in the year 500 AD. And I want to focus on the fact that this was a secular, worldly initiative. The Roman road system was not something that we see mentioned in scripture as a part of God's plan whatsoever, outrightly. It wasn't that God gave a vision to a king and said, therefore, go ye into all the world and build roads. We don't see that in scripture, but historically, it's a fact that it was something that was built. And if we can just, you know, track with me for a second, there's there's a question that a lot of people like to ask sometimes when warring with Christianity and, and questions, and one of them that comes up, especially amongst Christians, is why did God wait so long to send Jesus? There's so much problem in the world. Why did he wait hundreds of years when you have the Old Testament and all that's going on in Israel and all their mistakes? Why did he wait until now? There's a lot of answers to that question. I'm just going to give you one today. One. I heard it said up here today by one of these men. God knows what I need. And I love that. And I, many years ago, added a phrase to that statement in one of of the first messages that I preached years ago. God knows what you need and when you need it. Hmm. It says in the Old Testament that God, when he was telling Abraham the future plan for all of Israel and telling them that at some point your descendants, Abraham, that are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, they're going to be enslaved by the Egyptians, and it's going to happen for generations, and he goes, not until the sins of the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the, all the ites, not until their sin has reached its fulfillment, and the Hebrew word there is the idea of a balloon that's been filled up with too much air, and to the point that it pops, it's not until that happens that I'm going to then come and redeem, here's the point there, Israel, you want to be set free, and you have every right to be set free, every reason to want to be set free. But guess what? If I come and set you free, it's going to come at the expense of everybody in the world. And remember, God does not discriminate. That's a hard thing to grapple with, especially when you are like the Israelites in slavery. The Egyptians deserved it, but God says, listen, I have created every man and woman in my image, and I wish that none would be lost and that all would be saved. I will sustain you through this season, and I will deliver you from this season, but you've got to trust my timing because I cannot just give it to you because what happens historically? Man, the Egyptians are, they come under the wrath of God. Go back and read Exodus. Right here. I believe that the same idea is happening, not, not for a negative consequence, but God is using the world's time and the world's system in a way that's going to further the gospel, not hinder the gospel. He waited hundreds of years until an unprecedented form of travel was invented before he would allow Christ to be incarnate and come and live and die as he intended to before the foundations of the earth were laid. It was on these very roads that we see these different happenings take place. The road to Emmaus, the road to Amascus, the road to the tomb. Those were parts of the Roman road. And I could give you so much more history about it that you don't need to know. But for the sake of what we're talking about here, understand. God wants to use even systems in this world to further his kingdom. Not hinder it. I love that. The missionary journeys that we see Paul the Apostle take in the book of Acts, he got from destinations from Jerusalem to Thessalonica to Philippi to Colossae. Those were all Roman roads. And he was able to vastly spread the gospel in a fraction of the time that would have taken if he had to go through unpaved territory, harsh terrain, no waypoints. Look at how God works. So now, let me bring this back to technology because this is a sermon series about technology and I haven't said a word about technology yet. I believe that today we are living in an unprecedented time that God wants to use technology in a positive way, the way that he used the Roman road thousands of years ago in the times of the apostles and jesus to spread the gospel from its inception we've talked for the last three weeks on boundaries that we need to set up taking care to understand how technology can be uh, a road to destruction and can be a road to idolatry and so many negative things and, and how we need to be aware of it but remember what i've said time and time again technology is morally neutral tool that can be used for good or for evil. So right here, I want us to understand God wants to use this tool, I believe, in such a way that will further his kingdom in a way that has not been seen historically in humanity since biblical times under the Roman Empire. I believe that technology today is a form of the Roman road. Let me just give you one illustration. In 2008, uh, there was a man that heard, a man by the name of Bobby Grunwald. heard that Apple, y'all know Apple, right? Computers, Macintosh, all that, Apple. Heard that Apple in 2008 was getting ready to launch the App Store. Y'all got the App Store on your phones, your computers, you've heard of it, you know of it. They were going to launch that in 2008. And this guy had a vision. He said, I want to put the Bible in as many hands as possible. Because I want people to know God's word. I want them to have it. and I want them to have it for free. And so he and his team came together as a part of Life Church, largest evangelical church, lead pastor Craig Rochelle, came together. And in that very year, at the launch of the Apple's App Store, you have the opportunity to download the first ever application, digital form of the Bible. The goal that the team had was that by year's end, they would have received 80,000 downloads of the Bible. By year's end, they had over 83,000 downloads of the Bible in one year. And today, you can download the YouVersion Bible app for free. In many different translations, it has different Bible reading plans, all for free. Just because somebody created an app. And you're wondering how you can reach people with the gospel. Wow. All right. Um, so if we have that chance to be more engaged, we have this chance. Listen, we have a chance to be more engaged in God's word and create content that spreads his word in an unprecedented manner. But honestly, let me me just say this. Let me say this because this is a caveat that we need to be aware of. I think we have a tendency to further our own gospels rather than the gospel of And I'm talking about technologically. I'm talking about when it comes to social media, what we create, as well as what we consume. TVs, Netflix, video games, social media, you name it. Um, So when we're thinking about content that we create and content that we consume, uh, good news, the gospel, right? But instead of it being the gospel of Jesus, we are the creator consume content that is the gospel of vanity. Look at me. Y'all know my selfie thing. Like, I don't know how to do selfies, and you do that like duck face. I don't do selfies. I did one selfie in college, and my roommate roasted me for it. I never did a selfie again. And I knew it as I was doing it until so I was like, man, why are you doing this? I wasn't doing it like that either. I was doing it like this in a mirror. You know, that's the, that's the dude way. It's like, yeah, yeah, you look looking good. I see what you're looking back at me. Yeah, it's going to look good with the filter. It um, was the one and only time that I did that, and I don't do that anymore. <laughs> if you take selfies, you're not sinning but there is such an opportunity to promote a gospel of me vanity self-worth self-image making myself beautiful to the world wanting everybody to have all eyes on me social media is the biggest temptation to to fall into that trap but then the world also wants you through marketing to be all about yourself talked about that last week within the realm of idolatry and making yourself an idol so that now you're reflecting the dirt of the world, rather than the divinity of God, who you were created in the image of to reflect. Right. So you c- you might have that kind of gospel. Um, you might have an inclination to proclaim the gospel of politics. Come on, I know all of us have done this here before, where almost all that we do is putting your political opinions online constantly, and you post and you expect everybody to agree with you, or you're just constantly turning on Fox, NBC, ABC, whatever it is, and you're just... Taking in, taking in, consuming, consuming, consuming. And now all that's going to come out of you is a gospel of politics. But you're walking around saying, I'm a believer in Jesus. But all that you ever talk about is who's the president? Who's the congressman? What laws are being passed? I can't believe this. Come on, man. Come on. That's not what we need to be known about when it comes to Jesus. There is a clear line, a clear line between nationalism and theism dayism, Christism, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak about it and give us learning, learning on it and, and direction on it. Yes, he does, but there's got to be a line. How about the gospel of values? Ooh, ooh, this is a, this is a toughie. Um, a lot of you might have values and they might be good values, family values, things that you picked up from your Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents that have been passed along from generation to generation. Maybe it's things that you just learned on your own that you say, okay, this is going to become a tradition, something that we as a family value, something that I value as an individual. And then we go around and we propagate it. We put it on a pedestal and we want everybody to say, look at this, value this. And maybe some of it is fantastic. And maybe some of it can be traced directly to the Bible and to God's plan. But nowhere in the creation of that message are you bringing it back to God and glorifying him. It's not I value this because it's something that Jesus has shown me through the life that he lived that he then commanded me to follow through on. It's, you know, I'm grateful to my parents because this is what they've taught me and I've passed it on to my kids. That's a good thing. But if that's all you're ever talking about and it in no way stems back to Jesus at any point, question it, consider it. Because remember, technology is a road that gives you an opportunity, the likes of which the world has not seen since the creation of the Roman road, to spread the gospel. Are you spreading yourself and your family values, which might be great? Awesome. Throw Jesus in there from time to time. Give him the glory from time to time, time at least. I, I, seriously, this is a really good practice for you. I would say if you have social media Go back through your feed and just start taking note of any time that has anything to do with the mention of jesus Do you have any do you have a lot? Cool. It might be an opportunity for you to say thank you god I've been doing a good job and I feel like i've been serving you well or god. Thank you I need to do a little bit more to spread your word and I have the opportunity to do so right at my fingertips Lastly, we have the idea of the gospel of secularism, and this is honestly just willing to talk about or consume anything that has nothing to do with Jesus. Like, really? Um, examples: your new TV favorite TV show, just binge blank on Netflix. I can't think of any things that are on Netflix right now. Uh, give it a give it a watch. People say that. Give it a watch, and you. Tweet that, I don't know. Um, you go on, talk about your favorite video game, uh, your favorite music, your, your new favorite artist and what they released and how life-changing it is and, oh, it spoke to my soul. Thank you, Beyonce. Does Jesus ever speak to your soul? Come on. Sports, who won the Super Bowl? Or Brady's out, go, retiring, whatever, and you post about that or all you're doing is consuming that. You got to show the world about the job promotion that you've been waiting for and you got to sh- man okay that's where you can be God is so good you know you throw that little one in there but it's really about your job promotion all right we won't talk about that one but or it's an opportunity for you to just vent and all you're saying is I can't believe this I've been putting up with this pathetic company forever they don't care about me they don't value their employees they d- What are you doing? What are you doing? As ambassadors, messengers, an ambassador, which is what we are told by Paul, that we are ambassadors of Christ, understand, you carry the image, you carry the authority, you carry the word, you are a living representation of who Jesus is. What kind of Jesus does the world see in you? Is it a political Jesus? It is a value system based on family tradition Jesus. Is it an ethnic Jesus? It is a a job performance based Jesus. Is it a sports Jesus? Is it an overly masculine and overly feminine Jesus? You might be taking that in and you might be pumping it out. What kind of gospel are you spreading? Think about that because... You have the opportunity to spread that gospel in an unprecedented time, in an unprecedented manner. My goodness, what you can do for the kingdom of God with this brick in your pocket. What you could do. That they make it so any dummy can use it. You don't need to have a degree to know how to use this. You don't need to have an engineering degree or, or, or a marketing degree or a drafting or whatever. Computer science degree, you don't need it. You can do that here today. So as as we're closing this all right now, as 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 you travel this road, I don't know what road you've been on. I don't know what road you're going through. I don't know what God has taught you through it. I've just given you a glimpse of what his word shows us we can learn through different roads. But right now, you have an opportunity to spread the gospel on a road that will drastically change this world. If you are willing to remember you're you're not you're not spreading a gospel of you You're you're spreading a gospel of a god who is alive And in control. He's not a corpse in a crypt He's a king that's got everything in his control. That's the gospel that you should be spreading You should be spreading a gospel of a god who is in who is waiting for you to invite him into your life because that's all that he wants And you should be spreading a gospel of a God who is waiting to reveal his love to the most imperfect of individuals. The power that you hold in that gospel far outweighs anything that you can create of your own accord. Man, this is the God that we serve, and this is the season that we are living in today. So can I invite you to stand with me on your feet? We're going to close. And let me me remind you of this as we close. Our purpose as a church is to be a church that is known for love. Known for love. But but what does that love look like? We've, We've talked about it before. I'll always talk about it from time and time again. But that love consists of what we call the big three. And that is love that unites all around Jesus. Love that heals mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Maritally, financially, but then finally, love that reaches out. Not only will I ask you, is your love a love that reaches out, but I want to ask you, what kind of love are you using to reach out? What kind of God and what kind of love do you embody from him or don't is being shared with the world? Let technology be used in the way that I believe God wants it to be used to build his kingdom to build your life to build your relationship with him consuming things that are life changing for God's glory and your building up not destruction Father I thank you today Jesus I thank you that you made it plain as day clear cut Wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And we don't want that path. God, we don't want that path. I pray right now you would drive a desire, a temptation for whatever that path looks like completely out of our minds. Get it out of our sight. Father, would we not look to it? Father, when temptation comes, sin is crouching at the door. In Jesus' name, I pray that we would have sober minds, that we would be on guard, that we would be alert, that we would not be easily led astray, that when we're upset, we would not allow our countenance to fall like Cain did with Abel, Jesus. And he was angry and ruminating. Father, in Jesus' name, would you set us up right now for success Knowing that even though this road is hard and even though I'm going to have to say no to things and I'm going to have to stay true to things and I'm going to have to utilize what you've given me for righteousness, Father, as hard as it might be at times, it is the road that leads to life. So, Father, right now, I pray that every man and woman, child, young and old in this place today would walk the road of life. And Jesus, as they walk that road, would they allow it to be shared and spread in every manner and in every way? If you have a phone in this place, would you just humor me for a second and take it out right now? You don't need to look around. Get your phone and we're going we're to keep praying. I just, I want to do something. It's symbolic. It's not magical. It means nothing if, if you don't receive God's word today. I would just encourage you, with your phone in your hand, would you repeat this prayer after me? And let this phone, really quick, to be a representation of every form of technology that you have in your life—TV, video games, I, whatever it is, whatever access that you have to the internet, to a social reads, technologically, whatever it is. This phone represents that right now. Repeat this prayer after me: Father, help me, Father, help me. to use this device. To further your kingdom. To spread your gospel. I rebuke in Jesus' name. The enemy's plans. For me. When I use this device. Let it be a holy use. Not a sinful use. Let me consume righteous things. Not wicked things. Jesus, right now, I thank you for this body, this community. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of life that have been sown in this place would take root. And, Father, would it germinate in this world? Would these seeds that grow up into plants then continue to spread more seed, sow more seed, so that your kingdom would grow in an unprecedented time? Father, you are good You are worthy to be praised. I thank you. I glorify you. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said amen. Amen. Why don't you give God glory one more time?